It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gabfest is sponsored by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umqua. Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is coming soon on iTunes. And by Stamps.com, buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 11th, 2015, the completely authentic, totally spontaneous, fun-loving campaign reboot edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon is away this week. She's just, she's preparing for our live show and she just wants to take the week off just to fully prepare. No. So in her place, we have uh, the estimable Julia Yaffe of the New York Times Magazine and many other places. Back. Hello. Hello, Julia. She's here with me in Washington. And then that protesting voice was, of course, John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation and Slate. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hey, Julia. Hi. John, you, had, you were doing triple, double duty this week because you're, you yeah. you're podcasting, you're you may have even written, but you were hosting CBS I did, this I morning. Did. What do you mean maybe had written? You mean it doesn't get immediately injected into your iPhone the minute the piece shows up? Did you write a piece, too? I did write a piece. Jeez. Yeah, I wrote a piece about uh, Donald Trump and Ross Perot. God. And you're a face the nation and this morning. That's a lot. Yeah, I co- I, that, was the, that was really fun co-hosting CBS this morning. That was like, it's great. You know, the network, you get, we turn it on and warm it up for... Uh, for that, that new guy doing his show at the end of the day on the network. It's more likely that all the Colbert people turn their TVs <laughs> off and then turned it back on oh, in the morning come on. <laughs> when you were there. Oh, oh, yes, it is more likely. That's true. On this week's GabFest, Hillary Clinton tries to reboot her campaign, planning for more spontaneity. That's always a good plan. Planning for more authenticity. Planning. Teasing, teasing the spontaneity. And teasing the apologies, too, I guess. Will it work? Will this Hillary 6.0 be successful? Then, is the Iran deal going to be a great victory for President Obama or just not a defeat? And then, can Vladimir Putin stop the Syrian civil war? I know that Julia has a strong view on that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to have some listener questions. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash plus. And don't forget, we have a live show in San Francisco on Tuesday night, September 15th, at the Norse Theater. There are still some tickets left. It's going to be a great big show, our biggest show ever. You can go to slate.com slash political SF. Merlin Mann is going to be guesting. We have a celebrity introducer. It's going to be a great show. So go to slate.com slash political SF. Get your tickets to our live show on Tuesday night in San Francisco. 
Hillary Clinton tried to have herself a good week on Monday. She basically didn't apologize, said she had nothing to be sorry about for her email server. By Tuesday, she was apologizing for her email server. Meanwhile, her campaign was putting out a story, a delightfully preposterous story, I would say, that she is going to start having more fun, more spontaneity, more joy. She's talking about joy all the time, joy on the campaign trail. But more not yet. Genuineness. She'll start it later. She's going to leak. She will be more spontaneous later. The internet, of course, immediately excavated a 2007 story that was nearly identical about her 2008 presidential campaign. John, does it matter if Hillary Clinton is having a good time running for president? Should she have a good time running for president? This question has so much going on in it because it's both about Hillary Clinton and it's about our fixation on authenticity, which is itself a phony notion because guess what's the most authentic thing in the world? Being deeply uncomfortable about the goofy circus of a campaign. That's incredibly authentic, but but it's not the kind of stagey theatrical authenticity that either we or the vote we in the press or the voters want. So campaigns aren't fun. <laughs> They're not fun. And so to pretend that they are joyful is really hard to do. I think what they would like her to do or the approximate behavioral category they would like her to be in is to find some channel to open up to voters to make a kind of gut-level connection, however that connection gets made. And you'll remember in 2008 when she was questioned in New Hampshire after losing in Iowa, she was dead tired, and she, she broke down a little bit in answering a question about kind of why she was running. And it was determined at the time by pundits and also by voters, too, that this was a show of authenticity. And what she basically did was, was after stripping away all of the artifice, she conveyed why she was in it, because she, you know, cared deeply about these ideas. And that's why she was dragging herself and scratching each breath out to go through this campaign. And it's that kind of a moment, either a moment or a sustained pitch that they're looking for in in the Clinton campaign. Julia, is that something you can manufacture? Can you achieve that? Or do you actually have to have been defeated and beaten down and had your soul scratched and torn and run over on the highway before that can actually happen? Well, I think the second part of your question kind of answers the first, that, you know, if if you learn the hard way that this is what voters want, you would think that you would learn that lesson and squeeze some, quote-unquote, authenticity and fun and joy out of yourself this time and allow people to see your tears or whatever your real self coming through. But instead, she seems to be running a very analogous campaign to the one she ran in 2007, 2008, where she's super stilted, very cautious, very scared of the press, and being very calculated about, you know, how, how much of her real self she lets show. So, like, you would think that she would have learned that she needs to manufacture. But what, is it, but what do you even mean her real self? Because her real self isn't, like, why do we, why, do, why is it important to identify a real self? Isn't it just important to identify a self that is successful? I mean, maybe I, I think I misspoke. I, you know, the, the, the tears or at least what appears to be joy to the people she's uh, shaking hands with in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina. But you would think she would have learned that lesson, that she should at least put on a good show of authenticity. But she's still, you know, she's still like, oh, no, I'm just learning it right now. And I will start later. I think, David, the reason authenticity gets, or we've got to, how have we not come up with a better term for this, which is basically acting authentic, 
And also, by the way, we've done this for a while. I have a theory about where this notion of authenticity as a campaign weapon came from, but we can bring talk. it. Bring the theory, dude. Well, well, I wanted to answer your actual question in a second, and then I'll, and then I can offer you the theory. But so there is the political desire, which is to make this connection with voters, so that they feel like, hey, you know, I, there's something in this candidate I can grab onto, and that they therefore attach their affections to that candidate when they feel like they make a connection. And by the way, there are some voters who make that authentic connection to a candidate through policy. But I think the other reason that people might look for authenticity is that basically they think, you know, I'm going to give this person a lot of power and there's going to be a lot of time when nobody's going to be watching. And so they'll do the right thing. I am able to make some judgment that they're going to do the right thing when no one's watching. And if this thing we're calling authenticity is displayed, it gives a voter a notion that they have seen the real person and can take a uh, proper measure of the real person, and that gives them their vote uh, a confidence. But it's, as we've already said, it's a kind of a dubious idea. Is there any evidence about whether the most, well, these are two different adjectives, fun-loving and authentic campaigns, do they do better? When you think back, McCain lost in 2000. He was clearly having more fun than anybody else, but he did lose. But Obama in 2008 was having a lot of fun. Is there any correlation between yeah. actual authenticity slash fun and performance? Well, fun is a slightly different thing. But, I mean, certainly Bill Clinton, it's believed, was able to show voters an authentic care for their concerns and connect with those concerns at this kind of authentic level. They thought, hey, he gets me, he understands me. And, by the way, that's more important than, than this person's having fun. Clinton had fun and was enthusiastic about what he was saying and enthusiastic about his care for them. And I think that conveyed. And that was important for him. The problem here for Clinton that people are trying to identify is why are voters so connecting to Bernie Sanders and not to her? And so how do you open up that channel? So here's my quick historical thing. In 1948, Truman was a dead duck. In the space of a year, between 47 and 48, his approval rating had dropped 36%. He was just doing horribly. And he took a train tour to Berkeley to give a speech. And basically, it was an attempt to reboot the campaign. And what they found was, when he was doing these whistle stops in 1948, that he was speaking extemporaneously. He wasn't reading from a prepared script. And it turns out he was really entertaining, and people were totally getting into it. And so they decided, hey, this is really working. We're going to unleash this guy in a long train trip. And so he then took three more of these trips, 33,000 miles, maybe it was. I mean, he was basically on the train the whole darn time. And giving these extemporaneous, non-programmatic speeches, and that's where it was give him hell, Harry, and, and um, this is considered the thing that helped him turn around his campaign. So, because there's always something phony about the authenticity. This happens in all the, when Reagan was losing in 1980, they said, let Reagan be Reagan. When, when Kennedy was losing in 76 to Carter, they said, you know, let Kennedy be Kennedy. And so he gave a speech at Georgetown University and Reagan, there was a similar strategic shift after he lost in Iowa to Bush. So this happens in all campaigns. It's not like just, it's not just Hillary Clinton. It happens all the, it's almost in every campaign. There's a move when the candidate's not doing well to kind of unleash the real person and get all the handlers out of the way. But it doesn't usually work or it often doesn't work. And, and it really worked for Truman. And I think it's his fault that all this is happening. What would an unleashed Hillary look like? What is the real Hillary? And what would, you know, letting Hillary be Hillary look like? And second of all, just to your earlier point about how it's about conveying to voters that you really care about their concerns. 
Is that really what it is that voters are hooking on to subconsciously? Or is it this, are we conflating authenticity with likability? That, you know, that it's the more likable candidate or, you know, like the Paul Krugman column back in the 2000 campaign about voters felt like they could have, more voters felt like they could have a beer with George W. Bush. And he was like, that's not the point of a president. You're never going to have a beer with the president. You know, is it likability and like, I could see this guy as my beer buddy? So likability is really, again, it's this idea like, if I like him and he's a good guy, he's going to do the right thing And when it comes down to making a decision. Also, you know what, I, what never worked for me about the George Bush beer thing is that if he were more popular as a kind of, I want to have a beer with him, first of all, in that poll, he barely won. It was some Forbes poll, I think it was, or Fortune. Mm-hmm. He barely won it. And then he lost the popular vote. So it turns out more humans in the country found Gore more likable. If you just do it as a strict matter of how many human beings cast their vote, if, if, in other words, if Bush was the more likable fellow and that was the determining factor, he would have won the popular vote. I think likability, what we call likability, is this ability to connect. So whether it's they like the person or they find the person authentic, I think it's basically roughly synonymous. What would an authentic Hillary Clinton look like? I don't know. It depends on what voters think, you know? I mean, in other words, if she said something and they said, hey, that really, like, I feel like I'm hearing her as opposed to what some of them say, which is, you know, I feel like it's all very packaged. And I think, I guess the other thing is her her advisors and friends would say, like, there is an authentic fun. And you saw it a little bit in those emails that have been released, um, that there is a there is a regular person behind all of this campaign stuff. And what is authentic is the fact that she doesn't like campaigning. She's not like her husband who loves the kind of mixing it up out in the world. And that goes back to my original point is that Mitt Romney and Al Gore were deeply authentic in their sort of dorkiness, but they were judged to be inauthentic because they couldn't fake that they were kind of sort of traditional Pauls. I was going to say Hillary gave a talk and did an interview with Martin Indyk at the Brookings Institution this week, and they did a live feed of this event. And she came across as very authentic, which is you know, to say that she was just geeking out on the details of foreign policy and was deeply enjoying it, was enjoying getting good questions from the audience and answering them. But I don't think that that's what voters necessarily No, but this gets actually to a point I was just thinking about in regards to both Hillary and to Jeb Bush, which is that clearly both of them having terrible, terrible months. And one of the reasons having terrible months is (laughs) that we're so far out from the actual thing that matters and any voting and the actual election that it, it just the whole thing is just preposterous. It is it's ridiculous that Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush should be campaigning when in Hillary's case, she basically has, you know, she should maybe start in January. Maybe that's when it should all start. And really she shouldn't even have to start until kind of September of twenty sixteen, because that's when the real general election. It it's it's a terrible system that we have which has 15 full months of this kind of campaigning where the people who are who don't really like to campaign and who are substantively pretty strong but aren't playful have to participate in it and it I, I I almost think that it would be great if she could like if she had another job and she could just say I've got to do my job I can't campaign if she could just call a halt to it because she shouldn't be campaigning Jeb Bush should not be campaigning he should not be in this game he just every time he does something new it hurts him yeah, it's a war of attrition. It's not a campaign. Why has no one tried a campaign where they just said, I'm not campaigning till I think it's time? 
Yeah. Like, I don't think Hillary Clinton needed to get into this. I don't think she needed to do it. She didn't need to well, start campaigning. I think there's a couple of reasons. One is as primaries moved to determining the number of delegates you got, that increased the need to campaign earlier. In other words, you needed to get popular support built up and work these states early. In the old days, you either had a machine that would do it. In other words, you just worked the back rooms and it, you didn't have to spend as much time basically involved in all of this because you could wire it through a smaller number of, of polls that you could appeal to. But, you know, you have to go out and appeal to voters, and so that takes time. And there's first mover's advantage. It's like you don't want to let somebody else beat you to the people. And so it just keeps getting moved up. It's like, you know, the line when you go to get on the shuttle. Like, it's an hour before the plane leaves, but suddenly, like, somebody goes stand in line, and everybody else who's been quietly sitting getting their work done feels compelled to go get in line because... They want to get the better seat on the plane. So, yeah, well, you know, actually, I'm going to interrupt you. There was a great story. I think it was in maybe it was in the Post or in Vox or the Upshot, one of those really good places, about line theory, and it was pointing out that any system which rewards the first person to get in line is a terrible system because it causes people to maximize the amount of time doing the thing yeah. they don't like, which is yeah. waiting online. And yes. much better is a system which rewards the last person right. to get online. Uh, uh, yes, but we're not talking about the system that makes the most sense. We're just talking about the system as it is and right. why but, it starts early. No, no, I, I, I get that. But I, I kind of think if, if the Hillary Clinton campaign continues to be such a horror show and she ends up either losing the presidency or losing the nomination, it would not at all surprise me to see a very, very strong candidate with Hillary-level strength in the next election say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to try to play it like it's 1952 and see what happens. And be Eisenhower. Yeah, be Eisenhower. Just see if you can get yeah. away with it. The other thing, though, is you like having said what I said about like power brokers not having the role they once played and you have to go like massage the people, there is also the invisible primary, which is the insiders. There's a whole school of thought about the, the how crucial in determining those endorsements are, those early endorsements of politicians and insiders and staffers in the important states. And so you want to lock all those people down early. And all of those people expect you to do right. various things. And so to, to lock them down, you know, you lock down all the poobahs in Iowa, you have to go suck up to the poobahs in Iowa and you have to go and do it early because you don't want them to get grabbed by the other campaign. And so, you know, you could argue that's really the reason, which is you have to go and touch base with the elites. And once you start doing that, you're campaigning. All right. Before we turn to our requisite Trump moment, I just, Julia, I want to close the sort of Hillary bit here with a question, which is the Times ran a story about the Democrats' plan Bs. So you have you have Sanders, who's now out polling Clinton. So Sanders, who's, you know, 70-some, out polling Clinton, who's 69 or so. And then the, they ran a picture at the plan Bs in the Times, which was Biden, Gore, Kerry, and Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, average age probably is 70 of those. Are these plan Bs like just a joke or is that a realistic idea that you could get one of these folks off the bench and, and save the Democratic Party after a Hillary implosion? Well, would you have time? I mean, it goes back to what we were just talking about. You know, would you have time if after Hillary implodes, how would you get them? I mean, you get them off the bench and then what? Like, do they have the time to campaign? It is you know, as much as we talk about the the craziness of the Republican field, they have so many candidates. They have a really deep bench, and the Democrats were able to summon, you know, three, four people. And it's hard to imagine who else would have been, you know, there was Elizabeth Warren who took herself out pretty early. But, like, it's hard to imagine who else would have. Right. Had Hillary that. Clinton and Joe Biden been hit by a bus 
six w- months ago, who would Demo- have run? Who, right. Who- and, and could you have gotten a Democratic bench that was like 16 candidates? No. All right, John, let's let's just do a little bit of Trump Carson. So the new polling has Trump over 30, I think, and Carson, a very strong second in the 20s. It's hilarious. You have Trump and Carson, like the two frontrunners attacking each other. Carson questioning Trump's faith. I can't remember what Trump, Trump, I'm sure, said something nasty about Carson. He certainly said nasty things about Fiorina. Uh, Has he said anything racist yet about Carson? I don't no. think so. No. I feel like that's coming. Probably. Uh, what to make of the Carson surge? Well, I think, you know, he's in, like not a Washington, not a politician. He says kind of um, pithy, kind of common sense, going back to the notion of authenticity, this idea that we heard, we've heard from lots of outsider candidates. But Ross Perot was uh, certainly one of them who used this quite well, which is like, it ain't that hard. Like, let's, common sense will rule. And, um, and oh, by the way, he's you know, an accomplished fellow. He has a career that was a success. So he's basically an outsider who touches a lot of the right buttons. He's a devout person, which is important among um, part of the Republican base. So it's, you know, that's kind of why. Oh, I cannot wait for the next debate. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor. Money is one of the last great taboos, something we all need, but rarely dare to discuss, unless we're Donald Trump, until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Sujin Pak and Umqua Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical, Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open Account, coming soon on iTunes. As we're taping on Thursday afternoon, the disposition of the congressional vote on the Iran deal is unclear. Well, we we know the end outcome of it, but we don't yet know whether Senate Democrats are going to filibuster a vote on the Iran deal, thus not allowing the opponents of the deal to get the defeat of the of the or the, not, not allowing the opponents of the deal to get their disapproval resolution there you passed. Go. The filibuster, the disapproval resolution. Uh, but the outcome is basically clear. If the resolution is passed, President Obama will veto it. There are enough Democrats in the Senate to uphold that veto and maybe even in the House to uphold that veto and the Iran deal will take effect. Alternatively, Senate Democrats, the 42 who oppose the deal, will filibuster the disapproval resolution. The disapproval resolution will not pass and President Obama won't have to veto anything and the Iran deal will go into effect. So we know the Iran deal is going to go into effect, barring some absolutely bizarre set of circumstances. That said, John. Yeah. President Obama is going to get his deal. Those of us who support this deal, like me, are yeah. glad about it. Is it a win for him? I don't, yeah, or is it just not losing? Yeah, I, I mean, on the principle that a win is a win, he got the deal that he wanted. It's not great for him, just in terms of you would prefer a deal that didn't lose some Democratic support, and you'd prefer a deal that got a little bit of Republican support. He's lost four Democrats, I guess maybe more, Manchin, Menendez, Schumer, and Cardin. Losing the ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee is not great. But in the end, so, you know, why does that matter? Well, it matters in the end if this falls apart. People will say, you know, well, it was it was a deal that had to be passed by the hardest and, and on purely partisan lines. But if it goes if it goes poorly, people won't care about that. They'll just say it was a bad deal, and Obama got a bad deal. You know what I'm saying? The the politics of this will be overshadowed by the fact that the deal fell apart. If the deal doesn't fall apart, and and Iran is kept in check, 
and they roughly adhere to the outlines of the deal, or if they break the deal, things snap back, and and it doesn't you know look like this was a foolish move on Obama's part. Then how it passed probably won't matter. Do you think, Julia, there's any universe in which this turns out to be a great political beneficial triumph for? Democrats ever like you can see how it becomes bad it's like easily turns bad but do they ever cash in a benefit for having supported this deal and push this deal through or no well, it's, it's hard to see that because you see the kind of bait-and-switch moves of the opponents, right, who before were talking about Iran's breakout time and how close they were to getting a nuclear bomb and we got to stop them from getting the bomb at all costs, blah, blah. So now we have a deal that addresses that, at least for the foreseeable future or the near foreseeable future. It addresses specifically that concern. So now what opponents of the deal are talking about is all this other stuff that they were not talking about before, about Iran's bad behavior in the region, about all the money they're going to get from the unfrozen assets. So I think that, I don't know, like who who would the Democrats cash in on this from? Like the Republicans will never give it to them, even if it is a success, right? Do you think there's anybody on the Democratic side who could filibuster, like pull a Rand Paul? You mean is, actually filibuster it? Yeah, like, a, in, like Rand Paul style or Ted Cruz style. Anybody? Who would want to do it? Or who could do it, or who has that? No, you mean Bernie well, Sanders? Do, but they wouldn't have to do it, right? They wouldn't have to because I don't think the majority leader would make them filibuster in that way. But just for fun, you know, if they did that, is there anybody on the Democratic side? Bernie Sanders did. Bernie so, Sanders did a famous. No, no, no. But but I think your question is who is the most, or is your question who? Well, and also who is the most supportive of this deal? Who would stand up and go do it? Right? Wouldn't you need that? You'd need somebody who loved this deal so much that they would be willing to engage in a multiple day spectacle of Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who that would be. Nobody wants to nobody wants to be that person. No. This is like being on the parole board, right? Like nobody (laughs) you you let people out, but you never are gonna be like, Oh, I really wanna make a really long speech in favor of this guy I'm letting out because on the off chance that that's the guy who goes off and kills an old lady rapes and murders you don't want to be the guy who said that. So this is a total taking it for the team. You know, people who serve on parole boards never get to do anything else because it's like this black mark on their record. It can only go poorly. And so why would you ever stand up for it? Um, is um, So I think you just answered your question about whether it's a win or a not lose. Right. I think it's a not lose. I feel that President Obama, when historians write whatever the, the history of the Obama presidency, and if it turns out that Iran was delayed by... 20 years from getting a bomb or Iran never gets a bomb and becomes a, you know, a great civic democracy in the region and a uh. great friend of Israel, people will give him credit. But there basically is no universe in the, in the next 20 years where any Democrat gets any significant benefit out of having supported this deal. It's, you can only be on the wrong side of it. Dick Cheney came and he has a new book out. God, the number of books that, that people write these days, it's extraordinary. Dick Cheney has a new book out attacking Obama, but he gave a speech at AEI calling this deal madness and saying it you know, could likely lead to a, a new Holocaust and saying Obama is basically responsible for all the Iran nuclear buildup. We should have, we should have invaded Iran while we had Cheney, you know, while we had the chance. Right. We, we should have done if it. If it were up to him, right? Is Cheney a meaningful person in Republican and conservative policy circles these days? I don't think in this in this context he's not. The arguments against the deal have all been articulated. There's nothing he's saying that is new or interesting, and he doesn't have weight that adds to what's already been said. 
so the Cheney argument has been made, and everybody who needs to be convinced by the Cheney argument has been convinced by the 900 people who've said the same thing before him. So in terms of changing the debate, the only thing I could imagine would be if a, if a more dovish Republican came out and said it's a horrible deal, like Colin Powell, who went the opposite way and said he supported the deal. But that would be the only way that you could imagine an addition to the argument right. um, from a person from the Bush years. Do you guys think this was a foregone conclusion? Like that once Obama announced the deal that he was going to get it through? Or could he have done a deal that Congress would indeed have killed? I think it was always pretty, um, I mean, he had a pretty low bar. He needed a lot of defections from his party. Um, but they were feeling a lot of heat from APEC. Senators who were otherwise obviously going to go with the president because they're, you know, because of the states they're from and all the rest. So there was a feeling there for a period where they thought, yeesh, this is a, we're going to, it's going to cause a lot of pain. And there's also like huge animosity between the president and a lot of Democrats. So there's not a lot of like, let's all rally for good old Barack among a number of Democrats. Could a Republican president just ditch this to you? I hope they wouldn't, because then you get nothing. Then if we opt out of the deal, the sanctions will have already been lifted, money will have been unfrozen, and we have no deal and no no inspections, then it's really the worst of both worlds. Then, you you know, they could also then say like, all right, cool, we're doing this, we're going to build a bomb, and we have all this extra money now to do it. It would be a disaster, even if you think it's a bad deal at this point, or two years down the line, a Republican president undoing it would just be really foolish. Do the Republican presidential candidates, John, say they're going to they would abrogate it, or do they not say that? They Some just say do. it's a bad deal. Scott Walker says he would rip it up right away. Jeb Bush said that's not realistic and it's not a serious way to think about this. Donald Trump has also said the same thing. He's he's basically said I, you can't rip it up. That's silly. You can't go back on that kind of deal. But boy, you want to you want to hire somebody who's going to enforce enforce the Dickens out of that deal or file for bankruptcy. <laughs> so there is a differing view on both whether you could do it and also whether it would be smart to do it to tear it up. I mean. All right. GapFest is also sponsored this week by Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. Now you can when you use Stamps.com. Print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then your mail carrier picks it up. And you'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You can get the exact postage the instant you need it, and you'll get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, we have a special offer. Use our promo code GABFEST. You'll get a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. It is not really fair to say the crisis in Syria deepened this week. It's already pretty much as deep as it can get. It's like Mariana Trench-level horror. But the miseries continued, refugees streaming into Europe towards Austria and Germany principally, while European leaders debated whether to take a tiny fraction of all those would-be refugees or a slightly larger fraction of those would-be refugees, or those actual refugees, excuse me. The United States on... Thursday, President Obama said the U.S. would take 10,000 10, uh, refugees. While this is going on, it's also come out that Russia appears to be more seriously involved in the Syrian war than we previously knew. 
that Russian materiel and advisors are buttressing the Assad regime and that Russians may actually be fighting or certainly providing a lot of expertise to the Syrian army. Julia, you, uh, you are a great student of Putin. This is a war where we have bad, worse, and worst uh, fighting. Should we be alarmed or should we be glad that Putin is helping what is possibly the least bad actor in the, in the fight? I mean, the least bad actor being the, the dictator who gassed his own people. As opposed to the Al-Qaeda affiliates or the Islamic theocratic terrorist. And barrel bombs. Barrel bombs, his citizens. So there's two things I want to say about this. On one hand, it's not that Putin is just supporting Assad. There was a piece that came out this summer in the Russian paper Nova Gazeta about how the FSB, the successor agency to the KGB, is actually facilitating the movement of... Islamists from the North Caucasus in southern Russia, facilitating their movement from Russia to Syria. There was a case, for example, of a a young man who applied for a passport so that he could travel there. Somebody in the passport agency tipped off his family, handed over the passports to them and said, hide them. You know, like, do what you want with them if you want to prevent him from leaving. They hid them and the kid left anyway because the the FSB was able to make him a second passport within a matter of days. And the Russians have passed a law that blocks them from coming back. So there's now over 2,000 Russian citizens fighting Assad in Syria. But then on the other side, you have this stepping up of war aid and Russian military advisors potentially even in a combat role arriving in Syria. So to me, it reminds me of kind of what Stalin did in the Spanish Civil War. Bear with me. Um, John usually takes us back to like 1862. So going back to 1936 seems like it's very modern. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) So what happened was Franco and the fascists had amazing lines of credit from Mussolini and Hitler and were getting the best military equipment of the day at a steep discount, you know, with very long lines of credit, whereas Stalin was sponsoring the communists and the socialists in in, uh, Republican Spain but making them pay up front in cash, giving them outdated stuff that rarely worked, but also sending in advisors. And what it ended up doing was it just drew the conflict. You know, on one hand, he was supporting, you could say he was supporting the Republican side. On the other hand, he was just giving them, he wasn't giving them enough of anything for them to decisively win against the fascists, but it did just enough to keep the war going and becoming more and more bloody. So to some extent, you're seeing this, but in a crazier way in Syria because Russia is actually supporting both sides. And so it's ensuring that the war drags on and on and grinds on and on and becomes more and more bloody. Why is it that in Russia's interest for the war to continue in this terrible way? I don't think that they're necessarily thinking about it in those terms. I think it's kind of broken down into its constituent parts. So it's in Russia's interest to export Islamists who might attack Russian targets. This has been a continuing concern from the mid-1990s when Chechnya tried to split off from Russia and Russian actions in Chechnya created a wave of terror attacks inside Russia in the 2000s. So there's this constant fear of Islamist terrorism inside Russia. So it's in their interest to get these guys out of there. You know, if they want to fight and blow stuff up, great, just don't do it here. Here's a passport, enjoy. On the other hand, you want to prop up Assad because them and the Iranians are really the last guys you have in the region that you have any sway over. It also undermines American policy, which is a great a great plus. Russia loves to do that. 
So I don't think they're thinking about it like, gee, it'll be great if the war goes on for another five years and another, you know, several hundred thousand people die. It's more about like, got to prop up Assad so that, you know, one of the considerations seems to be that if, you know, the guy controls less than 20% of Syrian territory. So if he is ousted in a political agreement, let's say in Geneva, then by supporting him and by having their hands very deeply in the pie, Russia gets a say over who succeeds him and retains influence in the region. So I think that's another consideration. I don't think they're thinking that big picture. Going back, I guess, to the original question, they do have a side. The, the, the United States, one of its problems is that it never really picked a side. It never really supported anybody. It didn't well, really engage. Well, they did engage. pick a side at first. Well, but they the side said, they Assad picked, must go. We're going to have a red yeah, line. Yeah. And they were like, well, They didn't really stick to yeah. it. And then the side they picked, it was sort of the Democratic well, now it doesn't no. really exist anymore. Well, no, now now we've switched. We've done a complete about face. Now the 54 guys that we trained in Jordan, they had to sign a pledge that they would not fight Assad. So we went from Assad must go to you will only get weapons if you don't fight him. Right. But so as a matter of policy, should we say, you know what, maybe we'll come in and if we we and the Russians are supporting Assad, we can pacify this region and we should take a more active role and and be alongside the Russians and at least then have a say in what the post-war Syria looks like? Or should we just continue to be like, screw it, this is a fucking mess, let's stay out of it? Well, the problem with the latter option is we've been pursuing that since the beginning of that civil war for four years, and it's led us to this point. So the options that you know, we're being actively discussed in foreign policy circles in in Washington in 2012 were child's play compared to what we're talking about now. We were talking about a no-fly zone or about arming moderate rebels. Now there's, you know, the moderates have been wiped out. A lot of them are the ones fleeing to Europe. And we're not we're not even talking about a no-fly zone anymore. I mean, the Obama administration is talking about a, s- a tiny safe zone in northern Syria, southern Turkey. But the Republican candidates in this debate are openly talking about boots on the ground. You know, you hear people in foreign policy circles talking about boots on the ground, which in 2012 was anathema. So by ignoring the problem and saying it's not our problem, we are consistently pushed towards, you know, my my wise father has a saying, which is, you know, if you don't make a decision, the, the situation will solve itself in a way that's least advantageous for you. And I feel like that's what's happened here. By deciding not to decide, the situation has decided itself in a way that's becoming more and more potentially costly for us if we do decide to decide. John, the refugee problem continues, and, and a lot of the presidential candidates, I think all of them, in theory, were polled about what the U.S. should do about refugees. And only, I could be wrong about this, but I think only Martin O'Malley said the U.S. had a responsibility to take a bunch of these refugees. Not a single Republican candidate spoke up for this. Why is this not a popular political cause? It seems pretty easy to say, oh, let's take these, you know, these brave suffering people and it's it's a humanitarian gift. Why not just do that? Especially because it allows you to smack Obama, who's perhaps one of the reasons there are so many refugees. No, I think, you, well, no, because there's an easier option. One, uh, you can still smack Obama and pay no penalty for not wanting to take in refugees. I mean, people don't want to take in refugees because they think there are, are scarce resources as it is. And why should we be spending money on these people when we have our own problems and our own needs? Now, the president has said uh, on Thursday that he would increase 10,000, the number of refugees that could be taken in. 
But I think certainly on the Republican side, it's a pretty easy decision in terms of what a candidate would do that would be appealing to the voters that are going to participate in the nominating process. I'm going to disagree with you, John. I think it's something the motives are a little bit darker than, you know, there are scarce resources and why should we be spending money on these people? The problem is also that these people are brown and not Christian. We're scared of Muslims in this country. We think they're all terrorists. I wrote a piece this week about how America should take in more refugees, and a lot of the responses to it were quite telling. It was about how they're all Islamist terrorists, and they're going to dilute the Judeo-Christian nature of this country. I think that's also, in a slightly different way, the undertone of the immigration debate on the Republican side, right? That these people don't look like us. We already have a problem with migrants in this country. And as for the 10,000 that Obama said he would take in on Thursday, it's great to say that, but let's see how many of those spots are actually used up because the Department of Homeland Security has a say in this too. They also tend to think that the people who are fleeing ISIS might actually be ISIS, which is absurd on its face. And DHS has this, you know, we won't be politically influenced. You know, we have to be a neutral body that decides and protects the homeland. So if you look at, for example, in 2008, there was a big furor over the Iraqi and Afghan translators and fixers and staff that were helping American troops in the wars in those two countries and how they were being targeted by the Taliban, by various militias in Iraq. And because of the outcry, a program was created to allow 5,000 of them in a year until 2012. Now that number has been up to like 25,000 spots. And somewhere around 5,000 of those have been used. Out of what? Out of 25,000. And those people who did get visas had to go through years and years of, you know, while their lives were actively under threat, had to you know, after helping American troops had to then prove to DHS that they weren't terrorists themselves. So they had to go through a lot of bureaucratic headaches. The The other problem with the Syrian refugees is for a while, we actively supported the Free Syrian Army, at least, you know, rhetorically, and encouraged these people to take up arms and fight Assad because we said Assad must go. Now, if you were part of the Free Syrian Army or in any way affiliated with it, you're automatically disqualified from taking one of those spots because you are an armed combatant. And Wait, what? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's perverse. Yeah. That's bananas. Welcome. Yeah. This is the thing, and this has been my argument all along. Refugee policy and immigration policy is a very fluid, very political thing in this country, and it's very tied to our foreign policy. In the 80s, we, we gave refugee status to Nicaraguans who were fleeing to the U.S. because they were fleeing a regime we opposed. Salvadorans had to come here illegally because they were fleeing a regime we supported, and we would not give them refugee status. That doesn't outrage me. That just seems like regular politics. I mean, it's, yeah, but it it's is a bummer, politics, for, it's a bummer it, for those people who whose suffering was the same. But but, it, but it, you're right. You know, it is politics. And, and you have a lot of people now splitting hairs about, well, are these migrants or are they refugees? As if there is a true objective standard of what a refugee or migrant is. But there isn't. It's politically determined. Like, I came here as a, as a refugee. I still have my refugee card. But I wasn't fleeing violence or death. I wasn't fleeing anything nearly as bad as what Syrians But you got to be a refugee because you were a Soviet Jew? A Soviet Jew because there were political forces. There were American Jews lobbying Congress and the White House for years and years and years 
So, you know, there isn't an objective standard because really I should be an immigrant or a migrant, right? Because I wasn't fleeing war. I wasn't being actively threatened or my family wasn't being actively threatened. Yet we got refugee status because there was a political push for it in the United States. So it is all, it's all very subjective. All right, let's close this topic with one question for both of you or for all of us, which is we all know the way news cycles work is that you, people get very passionate. They, you know, they see a dead child and they see the thousands of people fleeing and marching across train stations, up train tracks, up highways, and they're moved and they want to do something, but that attention wanders. How does this refugee crisis resolve itself? Like, wh- at what point does the world kind of generally stop paying attention you know, does it resolve itself with thousands and hundreds of thousands of people being stranded in Turkey or in Hungary or somewhere? Or does it resolve itself with everybody being able to make their way to Western Europe and to a good refugee situation? Or does it resolve with, with the people being forced back into Syria? Do you have a, any guess on that, John? No idea. Julia. <laughs> you know what I mean? she, Julia raised her hand. She, she raised her hand. I have, I have an answer. I think, I think it's going to be a mix of both. It's also going to be resolved through countries like Denmark, for example, taking out ads in Lebanese newspapers where you know, there are a lot of Syrian refugees saying, explicitly advertising that they're scaling back benefits for refugees. So now refugees are trying not to stay in Denmark and are using Denmark as a stepping stone to Sweden. It's also going to end, I think, with the well, we- weather... Sorry to interrupt, yeah. Juliet. So in in that case where it's ending, what happens? The refugees just don't leave because they see they've been told not to come? Or, or they decide they don't want to go to Denmark. So it's going to resolve itself through various countries figuring out how they address this individually, right? It's also going to, I think, resolve itself at least temporarily because the reason you're seeing this wave of migrants right now that you didn't see in the spring or in the winter is there is a very finite window for when you can cross the Mediterranean because of the weather. So once the seas get choppy and fall comes, it's going to be much, much, much more dangerous to cross. You're going to see the numbers drop off there and it'll probably fade from the but the suffering the will not, it'll just be the people will be suffering. They'll be in Syria, yeah, well, Turkey, wherever. And yeah, Jordan. remember, remember, we cared a lot about the sarin attacks in Syria, and we saw a lot of videos of suffocating children and adult Syrians as well. Nobody cared about the follow-up stories about how we got rid of the chemical weapons, where they went. Nobody cares that. Assad seems to be using chlorine gas on his people, but that's because chlorine has industrial uses. They didn't have to give it up in that chemical weapons switcheroo that they did with Russia. Also, it's not clear that we, I mean, people cared, I guess, but they weren't willing to do anything even then, even mm-hmm. even after the pictures of the, and the proof of the, of the gassing had come out. Right. But in terms of just the attention paid to the topic and the yeah. outrage, yeah. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are, I don't know. When you're like Julia Yaffe and life is an endless round of cocktails, is, that, <laughs> is, you is get, your life an I'm endless a refugee. round of cocktails? I'm a refugie. You're living like a refugee, which means having a lot of cocktails. Yeah. yeah. John and I have children. We have like, you don't have children, right? No, I don't have children. Yeah. So it's like all- I have I feel, a cat. She keeps me really busy. I feel She's like when you have a cat, all you do is sit around and booze. <laughs> With the cat. Yeah. So what is, you, what is your cocktail chatter, Julia? You don't have to go first. You're the guest. If you want John to go first, we can make him go first. I can go first. And, um, so my favorite thing that I've seen this week is one of my Russian friends posted this on Facebook. Sorry, I'm continuing to pigeonhole myself. No, as long but, as you do <laughs> some Russian accent, then it'll be okay. Okay. So there was uh, this YouTube video that this kid posted from somewhere deep inside Russia. 
he looks like he's 10 or 12, like this prepubescent boy. He's wearing these kind of crooked glasses, and he's looking into the camera, and he's like, hello, my name is Sasha, and I'm a political expert. And I think that America wants to invade Russia and take its vast territories and natural resources. And the only two options we have in countering this is A, dropping a nuclear bomb on America, or B, conceding all the territories to the U.S., but that's not a possibility, so we got a bomb. So that, that was like he like did his little pundit moment. And there's been a lot of this kind of casual talk about nuclear bombing America in the last year in Russia. And what I'm just starting to think about is like the shooting down of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 over eastern Ukraine. It was the Russians who did it, and it was obviously an accident. What if that happens, like, with all of this kind of talk, with even children being like, let's, you know, let's do this. It's a great idea. Let's just, like, just tactical nuclear strike against the U.S. just to show them, just to show them that we're awesome. And then somebody accidentally, you know, pushes the button. That is, like, the grimmest, freakiest that's why you gotta, charter. That's why you got to keep drinking. <laughs> is, was that, did that, was that video seen by more than just your friend? Was it be, did it become the most popular video in Russia? I don't know. Actually, I sent it to a bunch of people because it was. It was but it amazing. wasn't like a viral video of any sort. I don't know that it wasn't a viral video, but there is a lot of this kind of chatter. You know, there was a viral video, for example, of this very popular television host about a year ago. He said, "You know what? We could turn America into a pile of radioactive ash." Because he heads a propaganda outfit in Russia, he has been sanctioned by the European Union. And this is my, I guess this is the second bit of cocktail chatter. You know, he's a big patriot. Every Sunday night he has this big show about about American conspiracies and European conspiracies and how they're just constantly trying to, you know, weaken and invade and carve up Russia. But we won't let it happen because Russia's amazing. The Europeans just dug up and released a, like an appeal that he wrote. He was like, can you please lift the sanctions on me? I'd like to go to Europe. Wow. <laughs> Well, he's got to see the conspiracies in the flesh. John, I know you probably had to drink so heavily this week just to get through the week. <laughs> I don't, I can't, so what are you going to chat about? Have to give up, I've had to give up drinking. People probably by now have, have heard of the new species of human ancestor that may have been found in South Africa, the Homo... Is it Naledi? 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 So what's fascinating about this to me is, well, many things. That, that basically like an amateur caver found these bones. Spelunkers. And, right, exactly. And they sent down, so they're about 30 meters below the earth. And the bones are in such a tight spot, such a hugely perilous spot, that they had to have these special earth astronauts, essentially, I think they called themselves, to go down. And, and they had to be very thin and small. So one of the women was four foot ten. Another, I think, was four foot six. And they had to do, like, a Superman crawl to get through the tiny little openings to get into the place that they ultimately found. And what's so fascinating about what they found is the remains of, like, 15 individuals. I think they were of all, so children, adults, old people. The largest sampling of bones in any one of, of a single species in any one space. And they believe, what, the reason they think this is a new branch of the human tree is that this is a burial site, and that these new, whatever we call them, humans, Homo naledi, were purposefully putting the bodies there as a part of some either ritual or some burial or something. But that you, like, like just the wonderful idea that 
on this earth, buried in little tiny pockets of the earth, are these amazing discoveries yet to be found. It's just, it has always delighted me because it means any day something like this can be found and we can open up in a whole new, like vast understanding of our progress here on Earth. What is an Earth astronaut? Like if I had known that that was a career option, I would have maybe wanted to be something else when I grew up. Yeah, well, I think it's somebody, here's what apparently it requires is, is being able to get through incredibly tight spaces as you go deeper and deeper into the Earth. There was apparently a crevasse that they had to go by, which if you, you know, one wrong step and you're toast. And then you had to be okay sitting there with, they had cameras, so the anthropaleontologists, I think that's I think that's what they are, who were watching could, you know, say, oh, go check and look at this and look at that. And then you have to just be okay being inside the earth for it's long like, periods of like time. It's like all the claustrophobia and misery, but none of the views. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. That's yeah. No, it's, that's right. You have to be able to handle claustrophobia and misery and, like, pick at the dirt with toothpicks for a very long time. All right. I have, uh, I have a chatter and a half. My first chatter, I've been thinking about white bread America. The, the, um, I think, yeah, the concept, because I think with the, in the, the sort of anti-immigration sentiment of the Republicans, there's this kind of whiteness and, and about white bread. And I want to devote my chatter to the greatest white bread in the world, which I've discovered. And it's made by a company called uh, Toulajour which is ironically a Korean company. So this Korean company... A Korean company with a French name. With a French name. It's a Korean-French bakery. Making American white bread. Is making this unbelievably delicious white bread. I just stumbled on it as I was walking to the train in Manhattan a few months ago. And there's a, they have a few branches in the U.S. And I was like, why is, there this, why is this French bakery staffed by Koreans? I don't really get it. Started to do some research, realized it's a Korean bread. But they have made this white bread, which is better than any white bread that America has made, that any Republican-loving wonder bread, any white bread that you've had from Pepperidge Farm, this Toulajour French-Korean white bread is crushing us. So we can't even get white bread right anymore. So what's so great about this? Is it the texture? It's, the, yeah, the texture. It's really, it's like really fluffy, um, and it's the softness. You can't even believe how soft it is. It is like <laughs> tell it how soft is it? It's <laughs> so soft. It is. It has this pillowy softness. I almost brought in a slice today. My family is so obsessed with this that I actually have to photograph when I've bought the Toulouse loaf. I have to photograph and proof, and I also have to protect it because if you touch it with anything, it's it gets squashed. So it is, it's just a, it's a phenomenal piece of bread. But America, come on. Why are we getting outclassed? I don't know. I think we need to get some Wonder Bread and have a blind taste we test. We can do a taste test. I'll, I, we can do a taste test. I'll All do right. a taste test with you, John. All right. Excellent. Next time we're in the same room. Okay. I, my half a chatter is I want to say a word about a new podcast that Slate and Panoply are launching today called Getting In. Getting In is a real-time podcast that follows four New York area high school seniors drawn from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds through the exhilarating and harrowing process of applying to college. The season will chronicle all the important steps along the way. Seniors will get advice from a stellar panel of experts, including former admissions officials from schools such as Princeton and UVA and from experienced high school guidance counselors. If you are a parent of a high schooler or you're a high schooler yourself or you just want to relive the angst of college admissions, you should check out Getting In. You can find it at slate.com slash getting in. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of Panoply Podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. 
Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Thank you to Julia Yaffe for joining us because Emily betrayed us. Great to have you, Julia. Please come back anytime. Thanks, Julia. For John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week on our live show. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.